Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Tony, fantastic to have you along today on our podcast. I'm very excited to talk to you about all the world of ag tech and all of the exciting things that you're doing there. So why don't we just start off with, Tony, uh, just let us know a little bit about your current professional responsibilities. Uh, well, thanks for the opportunity, Richard. Uh, yeah, so I'm an exec director of uh, my own business that I started uh, back in 2007 uh, yep. called Rounding Up, and it rounds up people, projects, and money. Really, okay, the right. main that it does so it provides corporate services to a range of ag and food clients here and/or to a lesser extent uh, overseas. Uh, I'm also the current, well, non-exec director and current chair of a uh, an ag tech startup called Davran Global, mm-hmm. uh, which deals with uh, a, a non-toxic control of weevils in in grains, amongst other commodities. Uh, I'm also a director of Southern Cross Agricultural Exports. Uh, they have an internationally recognised certification system called uh, ASP Certified for sustainable farming systems and all the produce that comes from those farms. Uh, and I'm also on uh, the board of a, a school that my daughters attended. Uh, right. So, yeah, I've got a, a few things, but it my, like my primary role is, is with rounding up. And through that role, uh, I also uh, am the, um, the ag and food lead for a, a, a larger firm called Pottinger. Mm-hmm. And I have a financial services license. So if there's anything big or complex that I need to do, uh, I tend to do that in partnership with Pottinger. And they're a global firm, but their head office is in Sydney. Fantastic. So uh, you are a true portfolio careerist. Uh, I am now, yes. Having right. uh, having had a, a, a range of other experiences, I, I quite enjoy the, the diversity and the flexibility that allows me. Okay, well, that's excellent. We'll uh, certainly go back and uh, talk about some of those experiences a little bit later uh, in this conversation. But so uh, tell us more about rounding up. Um, what are the types of clients you're working with and the sort of projects and so on? Well, uh, I tend to work with some large-scale farmers who are looking for capital to grow their businesses, to diversify or, or de-risk their businesses or buy the neighbours or, or put in a an additional bit of infrastructure, whether that's another packing line or a feedlot or, or buy a share in, in uh, some other downstream sort of assets. Uh, so I work with those sorts of clients and they're, they're all around Australia and agnostic in terms of sector. So it could be horticulture, uh, beef, sugar, dairy, um, a whole range of sectors. Um, other clients include corporates who, again, are, are trying to expand and are looking to either strengthen their linkages with farmers mm-hmm. and or rural communities um, or just look for new business opportunities. For example, a few multinationals that are looking to come to Australia, uh, I'm able to help them navigate the, uh, the agricultural sector and the landscape here uh, right around Australia. And uh, so, so there are a couple of key clients. I've also done a bit of work for local government, which was mm-hmm. a bit different, but I quite enjoyed that. Uh, developing an agricultural strategy for what was an otherwise mining-centric uh, local council. So that, that was a, a bit of strategy work. Um, and also I'm, I'm helping, um, uh, uh, helping businesses, uh, yeah, effectively uh, set up operations here in Australia. So that's right. 
And so I imagine uh, for a lot of the organisations that are seeking capital, whether that's through private equity or, um, or other means, there would be an element of the work that you're doing, which is not just finding the money, it's also helping them to prepare themselves for investment and uh, make sure that their house is in order in order to uh, achieve their funding requirements. Would that be right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the cliched term is investment ready. And mm -hmm. a lot of businesses think they're investment ready. They think that they're, they're happy to take on external capital without necessarily thinking about what that means for them and their business. Um, a lot of large agricultural businesses can be somewhat hierarch or very hierarchical and very, uh, you know, you, you never report to anyone with a different surname to you and all of those sorts of things. So, right. so working with, in particular, the large-scale farmer clients to really understand uh, what, what the external capital would mean in terms of the disciplines uh, and the benefits, obviously, the upsides of being able to grow and things like that, but also just getting the accounts in a format that uh, the management accounts and all the statutory accounts that are in a format that an incoming investor would want to look at. So that's, that's a big part of it. But also just going back to basics and strategically saying, what do you actually want to achieve by when? Uh, how do you think you're going to get there? And how can this money help? And they're three or four fairly basic tenants that I ask a lot of clients. And um, once they can comfortably answer and consistently answer those questions, uh, you know that, that, that you know, we're in a pretty good place to go and attract capital. And, and as you said, it can be private equity, venture capital, but it can also just be other high net worth individuals or mm -hmm. corporations. More and more people are wanting to partner in, in their investments in agriculture in Australia, realising Doing it themselves is tough. Doing it with a, a leading successful farmer is, is actually a pretty good way to go about things. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that there is a lot of uh, consultants and uh, uh, investment uh, creators in the uh, broader sort of community, the business community. In fact, I've had a number of them uh, on my podcast over the years, but uh, uh, specialising in agriculture is that a... Uh, are there a lot of you out there or is, have you got a fairly nice little niche space that you get to play in and be largely uh, unencumbered by competitors? Oh, it, it's getting uh, more crowded, shall we say. Um, some of the bigger firms, the, the big, big four accounting firms and, and second and third tier accounting firms and others look to do um, what, what we do. Uh, I guess the real strength is uh, that Rounding Up has a range of relationships and networks right around Australia, right uh, very much inside the farm gate all the way through the supply chain. Mm -hmm. But the key differentiator is this ability to, to speak effectively both languages. I can be sitting in a boardroom of an investment firm in New York or London and, and talking risk and return, and I can be sitting at the front bar of a, of a pub in, a, in, in Roma or, or wherever in regional Australia and, and talking to to, to farmers and industry people about how they view risk and how they view opportunity. And, and it's that ability to bridge the two. So understand capital markets and understand agriculture as it relates to, to risk and return mm -hmm. is, if you like, a, a bit of the sweet spot that, 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 that I sit in. Um, and it's great because I get to engage with all of those people as diverse as that, that audience um, can be. Oh, that's great. And so uh, do you wear the same pair of R.M. Williams uh, in the pub with the farmer as you wear in the boardroom with the investment bankers? Uh, yeah, I've got, I do have a couple of pairs. I must confess I have a, <laughs> I have a, 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 black, a black pair for, for Wall Street and, uh, and George Street or Pitt Street and uh, 
and I have a, a, a TAMP here for, for, for rural and regional. But, uh, yeah, hopefully, um, uh, hopefully I can assimilate as, as best I can, uh, yeah, regardless of the audience. But, yeah, I've, I've worn RMs since I was a young kid on a farm, so right. uh, I'm very comfortable in them, shall we uh, Fair enough. I was one of these guys, because uh, I've never worked out in... Uh, uh, in a rural city, I've always worked in cities, and uh, so I'd, lo- I'd look at all these bankers and these uh, uh, lawyers w- walking around in their own Williams, and I think you're just a bit of a twit, you know, if you're wearing those. But and then I started to wear them, and I went, actually, these are probably the most comfortable shoes I've ever worn in my life. But uh, so um, I became a late adopter, shall we say? And um, Davern Global, you said that that's uh, a significant part of your attention at the moment. So tell us more about that business. Yeah, so Davron Global is a company that was set up uh, three or four years ago to essentially commercialise a package of technology that was spun out of a cooperative research centre or a CRC for, for plant biosecurity. Um, so after seven years, it, it had a range of uh, technologies um, and one that was seen as nearest to market was this Davron package. Mm-hmm. And uh, it relates to the use of uh, some old chemistry or old products. Um, it's an inert product called synthetic amorphous silica, but um, and it's been, uh, so it's a silica-based product, it's inert, uh, it's food safe, all of those things, but it's, um, we've found a way to, to prepare it and apply it in such a way that it has a very high efficacy against a whole range of target species that, that eat, eat the bugs that eat your wheat in storage or they can impact on almonds and other nuts as well as a whole range of other uh, insects. Um, but primarily the work has been uh, focused on, on stored grains, uh, again, primarily here in Australia, but clearly it has an application mm-hmm. globally. So what we need to do is prove up that technology, uh, prove up the package, make sure that we can consistently uh, prepare and deliver uh, the SAS onto the substrate we're trying to protect, whatever that might be, you know, wheat, rice, uh, almonds, whatever, um, and do that in a commercially viable way. And, and uh, so it's been a bit of a journey for the last couple of years. I was invited to join the board because I have a, a broadacre grains background and a strong interest in, in, in all things broadacre agriculture in Australia. But I also had a, an interest in things like sustainability and resource management and, and the fact that this is a, a non-toxic, uh, essentially a non-chemical inert substance that's able to give high kill rates for, mm-hmm. for bucks is um, I just think it's, it's fantastic technology. And so we're, we're working with some multinationals and we're working with obviously a very competent local technical team to effectively bring that product to market. So okay. that's, that's and so thing. it's essentially mixed in with the stored grain and that then uh, prevents the grain from being eaten by these bugs, but the grain can then in turn be eaten by humans without any um, health concerns. Absolutely. Thank you. For that. Very, very well, well summarised. It's exactly right. And, and so as, as consumers are more and more worried about what goes onto their food, who touches it, what chemicals, where it's been, all of those sorts of traceability, provenance, um, sustainability elements that are becoming more and more prevalent. And I think COVID and, and health issues relating to, to the, the pandemic have, have heightened that, that interest. So if we have essentially an inert product that's food grade, that's used in other applications in food, so it's very safe for, for humans and other mammals and fish and things like that, but it happens to be toxic to insects um, because of the, the way it interacts with those, those bugs. Um, 
is really cool. And the big thing we talk about a lot in, in crop protection and, and or uh, grains and stored grain treatment is, is maximum residue levels. And, and the fact that the MRL for, for this product is essentially, um, you know, endless. You could eat, I'm not suggesting you do, but you could eat quite a volume of this and it wouldn't do you any particular damage. And you start to look at some of the chemistry that's being used in other jurisdictions and other markets for many, many years. And they're starting to, to become unavailable uh, because of regulatory concern driven by consumer concern. So, so there, there's a need. Um, there's also some resistance to some of that existing chemistry uh, emerging in, in, in the stored grain industry. And Davron Global's in a, uh, a very exciting position to have um, you know, a part of the solution. It's not a silver bullet. It's going to be a part of a suite of, of products and services that are needed to, to continually evolve and control these bugs. But um, yeah, for now, where we're sitting, I'm, I'm pretty excited. And, and as chair of the board, we've, we've had an interesting time to, to really drive uh, this commercial agenda and make sure that the science is robust enough to sustain uh, regulatory uh, collaborator and or ultimately, um, you know, farmer and or consumer um, scrutiny, I guess. Okay. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Uh, I'm looking forward to coming back and talking about some of the other things you're doing currently, but why don't we just go back and uh, learn a bit more about your earlier life. Tell us about where you were born and, uh, you know, mum and dad and growing up and, and let's, uh, have a little uh, wander through your career. Yeah, well, well, I grew up on a wheat and sheep farm two or three hours uh, inland from Perth in the central wheat belt. Mm-hmm. Youngest of four kids, um, had a couple of brothers and an eldest sister. Um, why that's important is when it came to doing jobs on the farm, as I got a bit older, there was less and less for me to do because I had siblings and others. So I I didn't end up ultimately staying and living and working on the farm. I, um, I went away to boarding school and then I went to university uh, and my father said, study anything but agriculture because that's what we're from. And, and of course, I ended up studying agriculture because it, <laughs> it was actually what I was interested in. And, and I, um, so I did an ag science degree at UWA in the mid 90s um, and uh, that was great. I suddenly realised essentially it's an applied science degree. It's, mm. it's got economics, it's got science and pure you know, biology and chemistry and things like that, but it's applied to an industry, agriculture. And, and I, um, you know, it was, uh, it, it's, it was a great foundation for me. Um, I had an interest even then in, in sustainability and resource management. I picked up a natural resource economics and environmental law units while I was studying agriculture, which is a bit off beam. You know, you're meant to be a plants, animals, soils. That's what ag is. But I was always interested in that, that the, 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 the resource management side of things as well. So, um, and as it turns out, that, that, that training and background um, I've used a lot in various roles uh, since I got my degree. And, and then um, straight out of uni, I got a job with the voluntary conservation movement as an interface between them and farmers. So, so where, a- Tony, was the original intention that you would go back to the farm or, uh, or you wanted a career in ag, but in a different environment to the, that you'd grown up in? Yeah, no, as I mentioned, I, I sort of thought, well, you know, one or other of my siblings would end up on the farm. So I sort of took a, a slightly different path, but I still right. maintained that, that linkage in ag because that was my passion and my interest. So, sure. so I, I, you know, as a young bloke, I, I, I must confess, I, I wasn't that strategic, Richard. I didn't, hadn't mapped out, you know, stages one, two, three, seven and, and nine. I, I, um, <laughs> I just sort of jumped in. It was the mid-90s. It was... Uh, 
Paul Keating's recession we had to have and a few other things. So jobs weren't necessarily, you know, jumping out at people. Um, and I saw this 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 role with um, the conservation movement at the hardcore, you know, greenies, chain yourself to trees sort of environment movement. And um, it was a great opportunity. I had a great mm-hmm. boss uh, who ended up being a federal senator for many years. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And then I had a chance to come back into more training and capacity building in, in uh, price risk management and uh, futures and options and commodity trading. And mm-hmm. I did that for a year or two. And then I, then I, I managed to get some management experience at quite a young age, managing a team, uh, operating a call centre effectively for inquiries from farmers from all over Australia with a, with a national R&D group called the Condinen Group. And that, that really, um, that's something I, I thoroughly enjoyed and it gave me exposure to a lot of industries um and then yeah then from then i I ended up with a few um a a chance to move to the east coast um uh and um that suited my 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 new then new wife who who was originally from toowoomba so she she saw a chance to get back onto the east coast is probably a good thing because we've Mm -hmm. been in the whole time and and i moved to a little town of 800 people in regional victoria and Mm -hmm. uh going from perth to birchip uh was a big leap but in, to me, it was a big town. It was twice the size of the town I'd grown up next to. So <laughs> I'd, had, I'd had birth in the middle, but it was, um, and great, great community, great opportunities. Um, and I, amongst other things, helped uh, attract a range of capital to fund this farmer-driven research that was happening in, in the Wimmera Mallee region in Victoria. And one of those funders turned around and, and offered me a, well, suggested that I apply for, which I did and was successful in, getting a CEO role with, um, with grain growers, which uh, had a then controlling interest in Grain Corp, which operate grain storages and port loading facilities and export facilities all around uh, the East Coast and in grains. And, and um, so, yeah, by my late 20s, I was CEO of this company with $150 million worth of assets. And, wow. and uh, I was running pretty hard. I was pretty, you know, pretty... Uh, young and enthusiastic and I still think I'm young but not quite as young <laughs> but I um, but I had a great great time I was I was lucky enough to have a fantastic chairman and or board who were very supportive of, of me and, and what we were trying to do and and strategically we needed to get back to delivering services that added value to farmers and the farm gate returns other than simply being a controlling shareholder in grain corp so mm-hmm. That was a big part of my focus as the CEO, and I did that role for five and a half years. And, and at the end of that, um, it was a bit of an inflection point. I, I thought, well, do I go and work as a CEO or, or, or senior role in another lobby group or industry group or, or representative group? Um, but then I figured, well, I'd managed some considerable assets, and I was interested in capital markets and finance, and that's when I essentially decided to a bit of a fork in the road, go more down the ag and capital and, and investment and or use the skills that I mentioned earlier, mm. the ability to speak to both the financial and or capital markets audience about agriculture and talk to agriculture and farmers and the supply chain about expectations of capital on the other side. And um, that's when rounding up was set up. So I've I've had that business for, well, since 2007 and, and it has been... Uh, it's been great because I've had a range of diverse clients. But I've also realised that certain times, jobs that are just too good to turn up, or turn down, I should say, um, have, have come showed up. up. 
Yeah. yeah. So so I've put rounding up into abeyance for a number of times over its mm-hmm. life, and I've just sort of scaled it back and put it into uh, put it on ice and taken on roles with uh, well the federal government for almost three years in a senior role facilitating foreign direct investment into Australian ag. Uh, had a role with Fonterra in New Zealand, travelling to Asia and Latin America. And um, I also had a, a, a role with UBS, the big Swiss-based um, investment bank. So I've had some, some permanent roles um, in the mix of that, that journey, but the whole time I've, I've, I've essentially kept the business current to, um, to always have something to come back to that's, that's mine. And, and, and that's, that, that's that, I guess, somewhat entrepreneurial side of me that, that likes um, you know, working, working for myself, I guess. Mm. It's interesting because, uh, as you said earlier, you became a CEO in your 20s, which uh, for most people is a very um, uh, sort of early time in their career. And, uh, and a lot of people, they become a CEO and they become wedded to being a CEO and, and the title and the responsibility, uh, etc. Was it a big, I mean, understanding that you wanted to take your career into a different direction, was it difficult for you to step out of that role of CEO? Because, for example, Fonterra, GM of Operations, UBS Executive Director and so on, did you think at one stage I'd like to step back in as a CEO of a substantive business or you'd really um, exhausted that ambition? Oh, I don't think I've exhausted that ambition. I, I, CEO roles are very challenging. They're very stimulating and, and I thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to essentially set the strategy with input from my management colleagues uh, and in particular with the board, set the strategy and then get on and implement it with, with the team, with the staff. And, and that's, the, that's the beauty of a CEO role. Yes, the buck stops with you. Yes, there's a lot of pressure. Yes, there's a whole range of those sorts of things. But, but you can lead and actually set strategy and then implement it. And, and, and as I'm learning and, and as a non-exec director in a, in a range of situations, uh, you set the strategy, but you give it over to management to implement. So it's not that I, I don't, um, uh, it's not that I'm not interested in CEO roles. I guess just ones that I've, I've wanted to take on um, that have, that have, uh, they haven't either come, come my way or I haven't been in the right place or the right time. But, mm-hmm. but that said, um, you know, while it is a few years ago since I, so I ran a, a directly ran a, a whole business. Um, you know, those skills stay with you for life. And effectively, I'm using those skills every day because I'm advising other clients and other businesses on and, and CEOs of companies and directors of companies on on strategy and implementation. But um, oh, no, I've got um, plenty plenty more runway in me. And if the right, <laughs> right um, opportunity came along, I'd, I'd, I'd jump at it, I'd suggest. Oh, uh, fair enough. It's interesting. I was interviewing another fellow for the podcast yesterday and he had formerly been a... Uh, CEO of some substantive uh, retail businesses. And now he, like you, has a portfolio career. He loves going in as an interim CEO because he says, if I go in as an interim, I don't have to worry about the politics. I, uh, I don't have to worry about, will Fred still like me in four months' time or, you know, treading softly? I can go in. I know the mandate. I can get things done. Uh, and, uh, and then I can leave um, without having to get caught up. And I suppose uh, in, in a certain degree, being a consultant is like that as well. You're, you're consulting in order to achieve, achieve particular outcomes. Um, there's less uh, legacy issues than, than stepping in and into a permanent CEO role. Do you think about that? 
Yeah, I've, I've looked at interim exec roles and, and you're right, consulting um, and or to a lesser extent, you know, non-exec directorships allow me to, to have a similar outcome. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, fairly strong-willed, I guess. Um, I have opinions. I, I articulate those, I think, in a way that's fairly direct, but, but, but uh, you know, pleasant or, or not so much pleasant is probably not the right word, but in a way that is obviously more in, you know, all-encompassing and, and, uh, and collaborative. But I, mm-hmm. I can come in and do rip-tear, um, and I, I realise that sometimes interim execs have a role to do for a period of time, but I'm, I tend to be uh, a little bit longer dated than that, and I, I tend to, if I take on a project, I like to sort of, it's the same with my clients, I tend to think I'd like to be able to sit around and have a beer with this client in 10 years, mm. and that's actually one of the metrics I use to take on clients is would I want to, to still sit around and, and, and um uh, you know, have a, have a beer with this person in ten years' time, and if if the answer is yes, I'll take them on as a client because I mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not short term in my thinking in terms of that. And relationships is also a big part of what I bring is an ability to build a rapport and and get to understand team members and all those sorts of things. And sure, getting to know them may involve having to get rid of them because mm-hmm. that's also part of being a CEO is where you where you you know you do need to sometimes uh, move people on, but but you do that with an understanding of the individuals. And, um, and that's one of the challenges I've, I've thought about a bit with interim exec is that you, you're probably not there long enough to, um, to, to really, um, you know, understand the team and build the team because that's not mm-hmm. your job. But mm-hmm. that said, um, yeah, I, I can come in and, and, and certainly strategically understand where the, the pressure points are and, and help to relieve some of those. But, but I've seen that my preference is probably to be a, involved for a little bit longer mm-hmm. yeah. and and how did you find uh the transition to moving into a non-exec um director space uh was it something that you had really targeted or was it more a case of opportunistically some uh ned roles came to your attention and you decided to take them at the time yeah i wasn't actively looking to to join boards um again i had having been a CEO, it's about implementation and it's about delivery um, and, and execution. Um, but that said, uh, when you start consulting to boards and you see how boards interact and how they respond to, um, to third-party advice, um, I could see that there's, um, there, was, there was an opportunity to use some of my skills sitting around the board table at a, at a governance level. Um, I... I have done uh, a lot of community work. Uh, I've, I'm a life member of a junior footy club in Sydney. Uh, I've been involved in community groups. I've been active in a whole range of not-for-profits over the years. So I've volunteered my time. Mm-hmm. Um, but when these paid directorships came along, um, uh, I still argue that, that in, in very few cases, other than at the very pointy end, um, the time and effort that you put into uh, non-executive directorships far outweighs what you get back in a in a directorship fees sense, if you like. Um, obviously, if there's alignment around equity and and you can participate in the upside, that evens the ledger up a little bit. But I, mm. I caution taking on a non-exec directorships just to um, to to make a living out of the fees because uh, quite often, especially early on, um, yeah, there's uh, there's um, it's not always a lot of money in the jar, especially with startups and even with with uh, mature businesses. Um, you know, they, there's there's very few directorships that are paying sort of a hundred grand a year for 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 directors. But uh, 
for good ones, they're worth that money because the interaction, the strategy, the relationships, the global networks that someone might bring to a board table. However, um, it's, it, it needs a fairly large business to be able to sustain um, that sort of stuff. So, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't seek them out. Some of them came along um, and, and I guess that the other part of it is having CEO experience is always uh, attractive because at least you've, you've sat in a CEO chair. So when you're sitting around a board and one of their key functions is to appoint, manage and or support a CEO, um, it does actually help to have had uh, uh, that, that CEO experience when you're a non-exec director. And, and I think that's, that's something I've learned um, very much so um, over, over my years is mm. you, you need to have an empathy for the, the CEO, but still keep them to account. Yes. As a, as a number of chairs that I've interviewed for the podcast say, Richard, it's important to be friendly, but not friends. Uh, and a couple of uh, things just to unpack out of that. Uh, so firstly, as somebody who's self-confessed, uh, loves to implement uh, and knowing the relationship with board between board and, um, and leadership team is board has a governance and a strategy responsibility. The leadership team has the implementation responsibility, as you've already said. How, how do you uh, curtail that desire to, um, uh, to jump in and make things happen yourself? Yeah, well, it's, it, is, it is about actually making sure that you focus your efforts on the, the oversight and the governance and the strategy. And, uh, and rather than second-guessing management on the implementation of the, of the, the strategy uh, and, and trying to jump in and, dare I say it, roll the sleeves up and do it yourself, you should actually be doing your role as a director and actually continually refining and stress-testing the strategy to make sure that it's the right strategy for the management team to implement. And I think it's about, it's almost, um, don't play with that toy over there. You should play with the toys you're meant to be playing with or play, you know, so don't get distracted by someone else's um, uh, role and activity. And that is hard for people that have come out of, you know, having run businesses and, and are, are action orientated. But again, I, I think the real skill is to, to still realise that execution uh, requires everybody to be working together. That's management, uh, the board, the chairman, the governance, shareholders, other stakeholders, um, and so on and so forth. I've just got a dog here that keeps coming in and out. Of my <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so so very very uh, very uh, COVID world VC sort of distraction. Yeah, um, sure. But, but yeah, so that's, so that's where you keep yourself busy on the things you should be keeping you busy on, which is the governance and the strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that then keeps you busy enough that you don't want to get bored and jump into to right. managing. And, and I think that's something that's worked, um, you know, reasonably well for myself um, mm. in, in, in the couple of boards that I've, um, that I've been lucky enough to be involved in. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's excellent. The other thing I'd just to... Uh, you know, mirror your comments to some degree. Uh, I'm always amazed at how many people come to me and say, oh, Richard, I, I really want to get on board, so I want to move into a portfolio career. And uh, I think they just, you know, think, oh, I'll go and get my graduate AICD qualifications and then all of these board roles are going to fall out of the sky and land in my lap. But as you say, um, the expectation in terms of the amount of work for the remuneration is very imbalanced. And, uh, and building a portfolio for five or six board roles is pretty, pretty hard. And the other thing that's happening now, you know, as boards are coming under a lot more scrutiny with all of these various inquiries and so on, 
is that the ability to actually be a good, competent board director and sit on four or five or six boards, it's pretty impossible now. So um, a lot of organisations are saying, if you want to be on our board, um, we're going to limit you to only being on board roles. However, we, we know that we have to increase the remuneration um, to still make it sustainable for you from a career point of view. So it's going to be very interesting to see, um, you know, what changes in that space, particularly uh, in the listed board space. Um, uh, so I, I definitely concur with your comments there. And, and for people who are listening to this podcast, um, uh, I think that there's a good lesson there is to really think about, well, what is it that you're wanting? Are you wanting variety? Are you wanting income? Um, are you wanting an equity um, play? Uh, some sweat equity or whatever it is. So, Tony, um, sort of looking forward now. Sorry, just, just, just on that, Richard, though, I think the other big thing that a lot of people don't do in that space is actually think about what they're bringing to the board. Right. I, I'm, I'm fantastic. I've done all these things. I'm, I'm this and that. Why wouldn't anyone want me as a non-exec director? I've got mm -hmm. all these skills. But actually... Uh, it's 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 a CV, but it's a CV for a board, and it should be uh, potentially a lot shorter and simpler CV than than one that you might for a, applying for a for an executive role, but a non-executive role, and it should be about ability to think strategically, ability to to actually um, build and 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 extend relationships and bring those to the business that you're actually mm -hmm. on the board of, and and I think that's where because. There are a whole range of people that want to be non-exec directors. And so companies, rightly so, especially the bigger ones that are paying the, you know, the, the, the higher sitting fees and things, um, you know, they've, they've, they've got choice to, to, to an extent. I'll come back to that because I think there's a, some risk issues that are scaring some people off from taking on non-exec directorships. And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's right. But, but ultimately, um, you need to actually think, well, why, what would I actually bring to that board? Um, and if it is, as I said, relationships, understandings of supply chains, understandings of management, because you've been a CEO in that sector, uh, understanding of risk um, and ability to, uh, you know, think strategically and, and contribute to strategic plan, as long as you can pick all of those boxes, that's, that's in many ways, you know, the, what, what you should be thinking about, because the audience, the board that you're looking to join, they're sitting there going, well, I need, I need a balance of skills and I, I I've only got X number of directors. I need each of them to bring a good network, a good set of skills, um, and, a, and a good collaborative sort of working style. And, and um, that doesn't mean group think. That's that's different again. But yeah, I just I just emphasise that 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 some people don't always think about why I would be attractive to join a board. They just well, think I yeah. Yep. Uh, again, advice that uh, it directly mirrors mine. What I you know. 95% of board roles never get advertised. They never get to the open market. They hire reactively, you know, top talent. And so what I suggest to people, whether you're an executive or a non-executive director, is identify you know, the boards that you want to choose, you'd love to join, that you can believe you can add most value to. Conversely, it's very rare that a board actually thinks about, what am I bringing this person on my board to do? You know, and, and we use a performance hiring methodology, which is what does success look like in the role? And so I think if boards, and in particular, the chair said, okay, these are the key deliverables. This is what we want you to achieve for us. And, and we're really explicit about that. Then um, it would ensure that directors are coming on with a very 
clear mandate about what am I there to, what is the value that I'm there to bring? So, um, yeah, I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword. And, and as we're seeing, uh, again, through a lot of these inquiries and through a lot of organisations that I talk to, they say, oh, we've got these amazing people on our board, but they're not actually doing what we want, but they're not communicating what they need. So uh, I think the board space um, uh, needs to take a... Uh, uh, a leaf out of the executive hiring book um, in terms of becoming very clear about what success looks like. But anyway, let's uh, let's move I on agree. because I agree. Uh, Tony, what I'm interested in, you know, ag is obviously um, uh, an industry that is um, has tremendous promise. There is also there's a lot of fear, particularly uh, you know, in relation to um, international investment uh, and potentially. Um, you know, uh, uh, overseas organisations owning um, uh, land and, and then having some control over food supply. And as you said, there's conservation issues and there's global warming and there's so many uh, uh, different um, uh, challenges and opportunities in that sector. I'd love you to talk for a few minutes about, you know, what are you excited about for the agricultural sector in Australia in general? And what do you think some of the risks are yeah, well, it's it's interesting because agriculture, like any business, is inherently risky. Um, but equally, those that are successful in business, including agriculture, um, uh, are those that are able to be flexible and respond to those risks. And I guess this is the old the SWOT analysis that everyone talks about: you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. It, it's about turning those threats into opportunities. And I think that that's, um, that's certainly something that agriculture is, I think, uh, in a very good position to do around mm -hmm. things like just using climate change as an example. Yes, it's a risk. Uh, absolutely. Climate variability is, is, a, is a huge problem. And irrespective of reviews of, of, of where the changing in climate is coming from and what's causing it, um, I think as we, we continue to progress into this decade and beyond, um, if nothing else, there is going to be more variability in climate. Uh, we're going to have potentially hotter days, potentially bigger, wetter storms. We're going to see it's going to be more whippy. Mm -hmm. And I think that those businesses that can withstand some of that, and including agricultural businesses, are those that actually can manage the risks and, and manage to, to have enough in reserve to get through those, those periods uh, of downturn and or, um, pardon the pun, but make hay while the sun shines. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's, that's inherent in any business, but in agriculture it's particularly pertinent. Um, and so, so I think there's a whole piece in this that comes back to a bit of my background and my interest in, in resource management, and, and it does relate to carbon. And I think that carbon and, and, and other efforts around carbon farming initiatives and carbon trading, and there's a bit of a buzzword again, and people are talking about it, and there's, and there's also around sustainable uh, farming and regenerative agriculture and all of those sorts of things. But fundamentally, it's just about appropriate management of your natural resources. And carbon, and in particular soil carbon, is a big part of that. And I think that, that there is a debate going on. I think it's starting to wane. Therefore, it's starting to be won, I think, if you like, or, or played out, is that agriculture is going, oh, we don't want to participate. We want to sit back. Well, I'd argue, no, agriculture should be front and centre in, in carbon and carbon sequestration. It's, it's inherent in what agriculture does. And when I use the term agriculture, I include that to be agriculture, horticulture, uh, forestry, uh, aquaculture, a whole range of 
parts of, of agriculture, not just, if you like, wheat and sheep farming. But, but ultimately, that's really exciting. And I think that the, the science and or the, dare I say, the carbon trading platforms that are needed are starting to evolve. And I think that the, the, the industry and government should be supporting that. Um, and, and I think that's a, a really big opportunity. So it's taking that threat of climate change and climate variability and turning it into an opportunity to both as a mitigant and also as a revenue stream. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's 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 a big one. Unashamedly, Australia is an island at the bottom of the Pacific and or the Indian Ocean, pretty big island. But mm-hmm. we are pretty much tucked away down here. Helped us through COVID very much. We could shut borders and we could do things like that. But we have been built on open and free and or fair trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that there are some inherent risks uh, in in shutting borders uh, to trade. And we've seen more recently, obviously, some of the issues uh, with China. Although wine aside, perhaps it's very exciting to see how many industries have been able to pivot. And actually, that's a very 21st century term, but <laughs> and, and actually move into other markets, whether that's in, in the ASEAN markets, in Latin America, in other markets, and even, dare I say, going back 150, 200 years and going, mm-hmm. hang on. The UK and Europe were actually pretty big markets for us as Australia. You think about the genesis of wool, uh, butter, whole range of big beef, big exports, uh, lamb um, in the in the in the nineteen hundreds and or uh, you know, um, so so we've been able to adapt, and I think that's what's exciting about agriculture is that it is actually very market focused. It's very on the ground and practical, but it is it is able to respond to some of these challenges and. And um, just on the first point that you raised, just talking about perceptions and, and foreign direct investment in agriculture and buying up the farm and all of those sorts of things, I can, but I won't on this, this podcast, give you lots of statistics around the fact that 90 whatever percent of all farms are family owned and, and 90 odd percent of the total land mass of Australia is family owned and, and all of those sorts of things. But the facts are out there. The numbers, if people want to understand it, are there. However, foreign capital is what we've built our agricultural industry on for, for you know, since, since, you know, European settlement in the, in the 1700s. And, and long may that last because we as 26 or so million people don't have deep enough capital markets to actually fund the sorts of investment and the long-dated, um, you know, risk-taking capital that you need to invest in in, in developing agriculture. Um, why I say risk-taking, I emphasise that because there are pools of capital in Australia and superannuation being the most obvious one. But currently, their attitude to risk and return doesn't marry up with the current perception and or reality of risk and return from an agricultural investment. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing Canadian pension funds, you're seeing uh, sovereign wealth funds, you're seeing high net worth individuals who may or may not have come out of an agricultural background two or three generations prior, more than happy to jump in and invest. Yet our Australian super funds have sort of dalliance, they've invested in water, they've done a few things. Now that's not a laying blame with the superannuation investor necessarily. It's also the product developers. So the people developing investment products need to come up with a risk and return profile of an investment product that suits 
the risk and return profile of the superannuants and, and therefore the superannuation fund that they're investing on behalf of. And I think that can be done. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity for agriculture. And that is a culmination of some of the work I did when I was with UBS, a culmination of work I've done when I had uh, other investment vehicles. And what I do with rounding up is to try to work with some of this local institutional capital, find out their risk and return profile and marry up an investment opportunity uh, to, to meet that. Then you'll see flow of capital from domestic pools. But until that happens, we still need the money. We still need We can't just rely on debt from the bank. There's only two sorts of capital, debt, debt capital from, from lending institutions that get it back plus a margin, which is essentially the interest. Mm-hmm. And you've got equity capital, which comes with an at-risk component by definition. And that equity can come from the family or it can come from uh, existing shareholders and it can come from new shareholders. And that's they're the sorts of a couple of risk and a couple of sort of strategic issues that I, um, I think about. And the last one is really about sustainability. It's mm. a word that everyone says is overused, um, but I think it's, it still is the right word. Sustainability is about, it's about, uh, you know, financial, uh, social and environmental sustainability. It needs to tick all of those boxes. And, and this, these sorts of socially responsible investing and ESG and some, again, are buzzwords. But you look through all of that. Their real drivers are, we want to invest for the longer term. I bring it back to the conversation we had around a board and governance and directors and things like that. That's what their job is, to think beyond the three to six to month mark to market sort of financial returns, which sometimes management and particularly junior management, if not the CEO, um, can get somewhat you know, caught up in. Mm. A board should be thinking five, 10, 20 years. Um, very few people can do that successfully, as I've discovered. A lot of people say they can think longer term, but then an issue happens over here and they're all very short term in their mm. response. And, and I think that if you, um, if you really wanted to see a better uh, marriage between pools of capital and or investment in agriculture, I think you need to marry the time horizon and the time horizon for superannuation funds and or pension funds are 20 plus years. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying, Tony. I think, you know, obviously one of the challenges is we are, the world is moving at a much faster pace. Changes, significant changes occurring more regularly and more rapidly. And so, you know, the GFC, the mining decline, COVID, et cetera, um, this sort of high necessity for reactivity, um, coupled with having a sort of a 20-year uh, uh, horizon, um, it's, as you say, there's very few people who can, you know, uh, keep their feet on their ground, but their head in the clouds, so to speak. Yeah, and I, I think they're out there. Um, and some of them, obviously, and I've got a couple of very good dear friends, one in particular, who's, who's quite a remarkable man. And he, he was very prophetic, you know, 20, 20 years ago in the grains industry in terms of where he felt that, that the consumer demand and, and things like nutraceuticals and all of these sorts of things. I mean, who was talking about nutraceuticals 20 years ago? I mean, mm. nobody. But, but so there are some people that really, um, and it's, a, it's about, again, uh, directors and 
chairs and boards um, talking to, dare I say it, consultants and third parties, external parties, and tapping that knowledge base and then mm. bringing it back to the business and using that to refine and develop and, and continually refine the strategy. And then go to management and say, you know, while you're executing, you know, have an eye to these sorts of these sorts of trends. And and I think that the um, you know, and consumer trends is a big one, uh, and upheaval, um, and COVID nineteen, the pandemic, and things like that. People have looked a bit more local. They're more interested in Australian based food. Mm-hmm. They're more interested in knowing uh, the health aspects. They're, they're more interested in in uh, less processed foods, uh, less additives, less preservatives. So they're trends that we're coming anyway, but have probably mm. been accelerated by some of these world events. But I also think that agriculture as a sector is amazingly resilient and amazingly adaptable. And so I'm very confident that, that, that agriculture as a sector will actually continue to do that. Um, I think it will continue to grow. I mean, the NFF and all the federal government here in Australia have got a stated goal of of $100 billion of, of essentially gross value of production by, by 2030. It's not mm. that far away. And we're at 60, 60 to 65 billion. So we've got, we've got to do half again, right? And right. that's, not going to happen by, that's not going to happen by doing the same stuff we've always done. You mm. need to think differently. You need to do, you know, create more with less and, and or the same footprint. Uh, so that means somewhat more intensification or certainly more value adding off existing product. Um, they're all real challenges, but I think agriculture has proven time mm. and time again it, it can do that. But but I, I agree with your comment. There's going to be broadsides. There's going to be things that come down the line. That's just life. That's just history. Mm. But, but how we respond and how we um, position ourselves to be more resilient, and I think resilience is is another word that, again, probably not used that often, but I, I think it's it's starting to become very much part of the agricultural vernacular is how do we build more resilient businesses that can withstand some of these uh, shocks, whether they're market shocks, climate shocks, um, you know, uh, people shocks and people shocks. Good example, COVID, no backpackers, a whole pool of labour was taken out. Mm. Um, Massive challenge for agriculture. Um, We tried to bribe and cajole, you know, a whole bunch of lazy bum you know, Aussies to go and work on farms and they got about eight people, you know, take up the opportunity to get paid money to go and travel somewhere. But it doesn't mean you give up on that. I think you keep going. But, but yeah, labour and, and unfortunately or fortunately, that's driven things like technology adoption, mm. robotics. Are more well, uh, Tony, you know, it's really fascinating because you're talking at a sort of a very holistic level. But if you, if you were to tighten the lens... Really, you're talking about Davrin, aren't you? Because um, you know sustainability, resilience, um, new technologies, uh, global application, and so on. So it must be really fantastic to have this little microcosm that you can sort of play in uh, and sort of tweak because that's very reflective of what you're talking about from a whole industry point of view. Absolutely right. And Davrin, the genesis of it, some of these silica-based products, you know, synthetic or, or, or naturally occurring, have been attempted to be used as, as pest control agents for, for 70, 80 years. The science on food safety elements of it is well known. It's, it's documented. But it's actually going back to look at some of the older ways, if you like, and then bringing it into a, into a current 
uh, environment with the use of some science and some very clever research and some engineering and materials handling. And there's a range of elements of Daverin that are, are a lot uh, broader than just uh, agricultural or, or entomological in terms of controlling. That also excites me because I'm an enthusiast about ag, but but I, um, I, I love the you know, whole range of diversity. And I remember I was lucky enough to get a Churchill Fellowship back in uh, the year 2000. And I went away to the UK, Europe and the US for, for five or eight weeks all up. Uh, amazing, looking at tech adoption. And I got back and a fellow was um, a fellow, uh, another Churchill fellow and I met at a, at a function in regional Victoria. And he goes, oh, I don't really go to the Churchill fellow functions because there's not many people have done agriculture. There's retired ballet dancers and policemen and ophthalmologists and hop- right. Yet I'm sitting there as an ag guy. I love those Churchill functions because of the diversity. Yep. And, and as much as I'm interested in ag and food, and it's what I do, and I, I'm passionate about it, I also love, um, you know, challenging and learning from other industries. And, and on Davron, the materials handling piece, and we've been able to borrow from learnings in the mining industry, and we're, we're learning from engineering, and, 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 and again, right into very deep food tech as well. Um, and that's what makes it exciting. But, but your opening comment is spot on. It, it is about sustainability, um, you know, uh, safety, traceability, uh, and, and, and being able to, to help uh, address what is a, a fairly major issue, which is, you know, essentially loss of grain. And, and if you think, you know, Western world and Australia, that's fine. But you also think of markets like Africa, um, China, a whole range of grain in store there is, is, is lost and is not available for, for human consumption because of pestilence. And if we can make it work here and make it work in many markets, there's, mm. again, there's that social and or community and environmental piece to Davram that, that I think is, is very rich and very exciting. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic, Tony. It's, a, it's been a great conversation. I think we could have easily gone for another hour, but I'm sure you've got other things you need to get on with your day. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, and so um, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, obviously, uh, if anybody's in the ag space and is interested in learning a little bit more about Tony's services through rounding up and potentially how he can help you, Um, there'll be links to Tony's LinkedIn profile in the show notes or feel free to contact me and I'll make an introduction. Uh, But Tony, uh, I really uh, have enjoyed this discussion. So thank you very much and have a fantastic afternoon. Thanks for the opportunity, Richard, and we'll catch up soon. Thanks. Good stuff. Thank you for joining us on the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. If you'd like a free copy of Richard Triggs' book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, please visit uncoverthehiddenjobmarket.com to register your details. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air podcast network.